know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to, to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were, we were not looking to, to praise for, we were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even through his apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order, to, in order not to be burdened to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are the witness, and so is God, of, holy, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, <coughs> encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Thanks very much. Great reading. Great reading. Wonderful. Thank you very much. So we are in a second part of uh, the next section of Thessalonians here today. And uh, I wonder how many of you uh, have been watching this show. Any of you been watching The Masked Singer? Dare you admit it? You admit it? With your daughter? Uh, have, you, have any of you, though, seen a bit of it or heard about it? You know about it? You have a little bit? Yeah? I watched a little bit of it last night, and um, I, it's funny because the, so I'll tell you, the title of the sermon, which I'd already decided before last night, is Unmasked. Because in the passage we're looking at in First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about the fact he didn't put on a mask when he was with the Thessalonians. What they saw was what they got, is, is the point of a lot of this passage. But then last night, I, I was browsing the television schedule, and I realized the Masked Singer was on, and I hadn't watched it. I thought, how serendipitous, perhaps. So I turned it on for the last 15 minutes. It is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen in my life. I, there's some strange things on television, but this about takes the biscuit. I mean, last night, do you know who knitting is? So one of the, so they, they dress up as these characters, and they pretend, you know, they have these persona and costumes, and one of them is called knitting. And it is somebody, a female singer, dressed as a sort of a, a ball of knitting with knitting needles sticking out of its head and knitting needles for legs, walking around. I mean, it, yeah. that was your one. Yeah, well, maybe it was you last night. Uh, unmasked. <laughs> it's such a strange show. It was, it was entertaining in that kind of bizarre way. I can't quite work out what I'm watching kind of way. Um, but you know, there's fun in a show like that, allegedly. There's some kind of fun, some kind of fun in a show like that. But I don't know about you, but I, I don't like to be fooled. I don't like it when something pretends to be one thing and it turns out to be another. And even more pertinently, when someone pretends to be something to you 
and you find out that they cannot be trusted. That devastates relationships, doesn't it? It's true in marriage, uh, it's true in families, it's true in politics, it's true in the workplace, and sometimes it's even true in Christendom, in congregations. Pretense is one of the worst things. And let's face it, my friends, and I talk to myself here as well, we all struggle with not pretending. We all struggle with the idea of being our authentic self all the time. And the context is we're going to talk about this today and how, the, how, we, how we wrestle with that as Christians and with our faith. And we're looking at learning from the Thessalonian church because they were under a lot of pressure after Paul left. As, he, as Victor said, he left after three weeks. And after he left, he left a baby Christian congregation essentially on their own for a year. Tough, tough gig for those young Christians. And during that time, a lot of pressure was heaped upon them. And the main pressure was to return to idol worship, which may not seem a big deal to us, but it really was a big deal to them. In chapter 1, verse 9, it says they turned from God to idol, uh, from idols to God. Big shift for them. And they were being tempted back. And one of the methods that was being used by their opponents was to say, as for that fellow Paul, you can't trust him. You only knew him for three weeks. How, can, how well can you know someone if you've only known them for three weeks? They appeared out of nowhere. You didn't invite them. They just turned up. And after three weeks, they left. How could you trust someone like that? Is the kind of narrative that's going on. And so they're under a lot of pressure. Let me ask you, what kind of things pressurize us to go back to our old ways? Things we've given up, the things we've changed, things we've stopped doing, things that are now no longer part of our lives because we follow Jesus. What sort of pressures, you don't have to necessarily name your particular issue if you don't want to, but what are the sorts of things that we're tempted back towards? Or what are the pressures that, maybe also the pressures, what are the pressures that we feel as Christians to go back to a way of life that we've given up? What sort of things... Do we feel pressure us? People, things, situations, culture, society, values around us. What are some of those pressures? The pressure to be liked. The pressure to be popular, to be liked. Who likes being the unliked person at work? I mean, no one likes that. Anger. Anger. Okay. Or I impersonate, swear a lot, and I realise that when I'm in I'm not one of these sort of people who seem to like always in prayer. I tend to go one or the other. So I react to things. And, um, and I know that sometimes I see things I see injustice. I think it made me really angry. And sometimes that's the time when I know I can just, I hear these words going through my head. And right. sometimes they slip out. And I have to, you know, I say sorry to God. But that I know is something that can push me back with all I need to do. Thanks for sharing that. Because you're obviously, knowing you a bit, you're a very passionate person. Right, And that passion used to be untamed, perhaps, and unguided. And then Christ came to guide you with that. You didn't lose your passion, but it's been refined. And of course, that happens with a lot of us. We have some kind of strength that God has to refine. But we're always, we are tempted in the same area to be ungodly with that passion. That's something I think most of us would struggle with. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Fernando. Things that are culturally accepted. Think, okay. They're not godly, but they are accepted by the world, by everybody. And I think those things are 
very sometimes difficult to, you don't want to fall into what everybody else is doing, because the Bible says as a thief in the way the world, we are not of the world, uh, and I think it's striking that balance of really, yes, I am what I am, and uh, so that would be the struggle, like just not, not just living a worldly life in your life, because it's just normal what everybody does. Just because it's normal for everybody else doesn't mean we join in, but the pressure to join in is strong because that's what everybody thinks is normal. Very, very true. Anything else? Victor? I think it's fear process. I, I, I have been that for None of my own friends, and I've over 30 years from school and boarding school and stuff, none of them have cycled. And we're on a WhatsApp group. And um, none of them have cycled. And they share stuff and send stuff. And often I felt, should I meet this group? <laughs> should I quit? Right. And then their friends are gone for 30 years doing the same boarding school. We fought and did so many things together. And then you get this goodbye to I give them a little bit and then they come down on me and then and it's awkward. But I think perhaps that's the approach. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, if you're in a group and you have a you have an emotional connection with those people, not just an intellectual one, right? That in that emotional connection makes it much harder to resist. That's a great point. Somebody said something over here. Yeah. Yeah, the pain and loss. That's tough because you don't like, well, most of us don't like to feel pain and we don't like to feel loss. At least not for long. Yeah. There's a lot of pressures on us. And maybe the pressures are growing in our culture as it becomes less and less acceptable to be a Christian, less and less part of the cultural conversation less and less part of the values that this country never was a Christian country, in my opinion, but nonetheless used to perhaps be more shaped by those values than now. Maybe there's more pressure on us than before. I don't know. I don't know how to quantify this, but I think that's why this kind of what we're going to learn here about Paul and his relationship with the Thessalonians is going to, I hope, help us to better resist those pressures and know how to handle with them. So we're going to talk about two things today. We're going to be talking about God's messengers. Now, this applies to all of us because we're all God's messengers. But in this particular case, it's the Apostle Paul, and he's the one under attack. So we're going to look at how he defends himself. And in my opinion, he defends himself in a sense by not really defending himself. It's quite interesting. Paul's a smart guy. You have to think about this. But we're going to talk first of all about what God's messengers are like on the inside, the inner part of it. And that's the first part of this uh, section. And then we're going to talk about what God's messages are like in their outward behavior and how then that matches up, all right? And in between, I'm going to ask you some questions, so keep your brain in gear, all right, as we go along. So, God's messages, what, they like, what are they like inside? Well, he says in verse 2, we had previously suffered and been outrageously treated in Philippi, but we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So what we're looking at here is God's messages are self-motivated. They don't have a boss making them do something. He was in Philippi, in Acts, uh, and you can look that up in Acts 16 before we got to Thessalonica in Acts 17. And in Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy, uh, they preach the gospel. They are stripped, which is one indignation I definitely don't want to have in public. They are stripped. They are beaten with rods. I mean, a rod, uh, I don't know, like a leg of that tripod or something. If you could snap it off and hit them with it, they were beaten with rods like that. Uh, they were severely flogged. So a whip, not just a flogging, severe flogging. The Jews were allowed to flog people 39 lashes, but these are, this is not a Jewish culture, so they could have been flogged as much as anybody wanted to flog them. They are flogged. They are put into prison, not a nice clean cell, right? Down in a, like a dungeon, they're put in the prison and their feet 
I'll put in stocks. So now your legs are stuck, you can't move. Who knows how you're gonna to go to the toilet and when and how that's gonna work out. You, you're, you're stuck, you're at the mercy of anybody else that comes into your prison cell and wants to do to you whatever they want to do to you, you cannot escape. This is what happened in Philippi. So this happens in Philippi, and then they get to leave. And you think, fantastic, hate Philippi, I don't wanna go back there again. TripAdvisor gonna get a very low rating on TripAdvisor. <laughs> Not going back to Philippi, so you go then to Thessalonica and you think, man, we need a break. I mean, you know what it's like when you've had a tough weekend or you've had a sick child crying for three nights in a row. You just need a break, right? He didn't he deserve a break? Hadn't he been working hard for God? But what did he do? He gets to, to Thessalonica and he says, we dared to, very bold, we dared to tell you the gospel in the face of strong opposition. There's, a, there's a, a mob and a riot that happens in Thessalonica because they're there. That's in Acts 17. Same kind of thing happens again. Why on earth? He's, he's saying, this is about motives. What on earth would motivate me to do that if I was looking to get something from you? Why on earth would I do that if I had impure motives? I'd have to be some twisted, really weird, sick person to do that for my own gain. I, what am I getting out of that? Is the subtext of what he's saying here. You know, real Christian, what's the right word? Real Christian, the evidence of genuine Christianity is largely something to do with being self-motivated such that we serve, however we serve, we serve in such a way it doesn't really bring anything back to us. And it costs us. It costs us more than we receive. Maybe that's it. That's Jesus, isn't it? It cost him more than he received. When he came to earth. It cost Paul more than he received. Suffering is an authenticating mark of, a, of an apostle, of a messenger of God. Still the same today. And that suffering might not be being stripped and beaten with rods and flogged. It might not be, but it might be other things. It might be scorn. It might be being gossiped about. It might be being excluded. It might mean you don't get the advantages in life you once thought you would have in your education or in your workplace with the promotions and salaries and I don't know but and it might be that when you serve you don't feel like you get much back but that's one of the authenticating marks of a messenger of God and you and I are all on some levels messengers of God his motives he says in verse 3 the what we do doesn't spring from error or impure motives we're not trying to trick you we're not tricky people we're not trying to trick you. If he had trick, been tricking them, they would know by now as he writes this letter a year later. They, they'd know. But he can, he can confidently write to them saying, you know I didn't trick you, right? And the congregation would go, amen. You know I have pure motives, right? Yeah, amen. You know I preach to you despite strong opposition. The congregation would say, yeah, that's true. He knows that because that is how he lived. Otherwise, why write it? On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God, entrusted with the gospel, not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Uh, we didn't use flattery. We didn't put on a mask, mask there, to cover up greed. God's our witness. Not looking for praise from people, you or anyone else. As apostles, we could have asserted our authority. Like, look who we are. How many of you here in this church in Thessalonica, how many of you have met Jesus? Uh, none. I have. I have. Let me tell you my story. That's not his attitude. He's like, I could have told you everything. You should do this. You should do that. Do that. Do that. Don't do that. What are you doing? You wicked people. Stop it. 
he could have been like that, but he's like, well, no. And we go on to talk about the outer expression of that in a minute, but there's a great humility here in Paul. And they know he didn't do it for greed. He didn't do it for, to flatter them. Flattery doesn't usually get you beaten up, thrown in jail. Of course, we could say, well, this obviously applies to Paul, and it applies to people in leadership, but it doesn't really apply to me. I'd say, no, 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 it applies to a Christian, just as much, any Christian as much as anybody else, because we are all God's messengers. And these are qualities of Christ-likeness, and all of us want to be more like Christ. Pure motives, no flattery, not to please ourselves. Um, in a book called Glittering Vices by Rebecca, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that middle name, De Young. Um, yeah, it's Dutch. Thank you. We have our Dutch experts here. Thank you very much. Uh, she wrote this. The hallmark of well-entrenched greed, then, is a willingness to use people to serve our love for money rather than, use, rather than the use of money to serve our love for people. We have a choice. Use people to get money or use money to love people. That's one of the marks of sincerity in the way that we treat people, especially as Christians. And Paul says, no, it wasn't for greed. We didn't do it for greed. Because we know from uh, other parts of the letter and elsewhere that Paul didn't take a salary from the church uh, for one reason or another. He did elsewhere, but not there. He worked uh, as his, uh, in his tent-making business. A second quote from another book called Redefining Leadership by Joseph M. Stowell. When we process our leadership by character, so it's about character, and this is what really about character here, Christ-like character. When we process leadership by character, our character, the quality of the outcomes, what actually happens, will be measured by a thriving culture where people are valued and not used, where the leader is respected and not feared, where a leader is trusted and not doubted, where the moral authority of the leader's life makes others glad to cooperate and achieve, where grace underwrites the administration of the employee's handbook, and where the leader's example stimulates those he serves to live and lead as the leader lives and leads. It seems to me Paul, Paul embodies this principle. He could have been writing about Paul right here. Paul didn't stand on his authority. He stood on service. And his character was enough, along with that message. And of course, this is about leadership, but again, I think it applies to any of us who are taking the gospel to somebody else. It's, where, it's how we embody the gospel that matters more than our knowledge or our so-called expertise. So that's what's going on in the inside, and this affects how people, how we live and treat people at home, uh, in church, at work, uh, with our friends, or whoever we are with. But now let's have a quick look at some of the things that we see in this passage about Paul's engagement with the people in Thessalonica, how he treated them, what God's messengers are like with, with other people externally. And back in verse uh, 7 now, the first thing he mentions to them is that is he said, we were like young children among you, like young children or babies pretty much. Um, aren't babies cute? Especially when uh, you just have to hold one for a while and you don't have to get up in the middle of the night to change a nappy. Well, Yesterday, I went to visit my uncle who lives in Essex, and my dad and my sister and my niece came up as well, and we had lunch with my uncle, and that's my niece's second child. Uh, that's Freya, who is just a very, obviously very young, she's a little baby, and that was my first chance to have a picture with her. 
Uh, and it was just gorgeous to sit there, you know, to hold to hold the baby. And then I sat down for quite a while while they were doing something else and just sat with her on my lap or had her up bouncing around on my knee. And, and uh, it, was a, it was just lovely, you know. I mean, it's just fun. I mean, it, just, it was lovely to, to do that. And, and to have that, that baby, maybe think about this, because um, it's, we were like young children among you. Paul's saying we were like, kind of like babies. Now, Apostle Paul, right, comes into town preaching the gospel. In what way is he, do you think he was, what was he describing? When he says this to the Thessalonians and they hear him say, I was like a baby among you. What do you think they thought he meant? Like when they're thinking back to, to knowing him and his presence with them, he must have written that because it would like ring a bell. Like they say, oh yeah, you were a bit like a little baby amongst us. That's true, you know. What would that look like? The Apostle Paul, a grown man, behaving a bit like a baby. Doesn't actually sound like a positive thing in a way. You, baby. That's, but there's something positive about this. So what is it? What is it that is positive about what he's saying here? What do you think? You were like a baby, Dan? Cousin. Okay. Simple. Yeah. They haven't got... They'll come into that, your presence wanting to, you know, want you to come in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, well, Freya had no uh, requests on me. She had no agenda, right? No agenda. No agenda. No agenda. What were you going to say, Dave? No prejudice or bias. No prejudice, no bias. I could have been old. Well, I am old. I could have been old or a young old person or a young person. I could be black or white. I could be, who, you know, whatever. Uh, not important at all to a baby. Pure, yeah, just pure. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's a man of incredible learning. He sat at his feet of like on the Buddha. He's a very learned man. Knew the Old Testament sort of inside out. But he clearly didn't come in saying, "I'm this amazing man." All these things just came in very simply. Okay. Like, simply, humbly. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts? I think I saw a hand somewhere. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. They are they are able to treat anybody with equal just equal what? Equal value, maybe, or something? Hmm. Anything else? Yeah. <laughs> disarming. Yeah. Freya was very disarming. Like, if I was gonna have an argument with my uncle yesterday. There's no way I could have that argument whilst holding Freya. It just wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. You know? <laughs> yeah, a, catch the baby, Uncle John. Uh, no, I mean, it's, it's that sort of sense of mellowing people down and, and calming things down. And, yeah. A young child. In some ways, I, I don't know all of what Paul meant, and I don't know all of what the Thessalonians understood. But I think part of it is this sort of anti-hero idea. Babies aren't heroes. They're just a presence, a pure presence and a gift. And I think for Paul, he wasn't coming in as the hero. He was coming in with an important message they needed to hear. He hoped they would take it, but he wasn't trying to be the hero. It's like, I'm just here. I'm here for you. Pure hearted in that way. What about though? Then the next thing Paul says is, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. 
as a nursing mother. So there's my niece, Emma. That's her. That's Freya's mother. So um, she's nursing the baby. So what? Not at that point, but you know. It, again, think about this. In what way do you think the Thessalonians understood Paul to mean like he behaved amongst them like a nursing mother? What do, I, images does that evoke? Protection. protection. Okay, safety and protection. Yeah, <coughs> safe in mother's arms. Responsibility. Responsibility. Some nurturing going on. Mm. Yeah. Nursing mother. I mean, I'm sure he knew he had limited time. He, I mean, he didn't know he only had three weeks, but he knew he didn't have forever. And so he was obviously already weaning them off the basics of Christianity, even by the time he left after three weeks, which is remarkable. Hmm. Okay. Other thoughts? Yeah. Okay, so a nursing mother has to allow the baby to set some agenda there, right? You, you, you can't decide. I mean, there are different theories on these things, I understand, and different approaches. But nonetheless, there's a certain amount of adjusting one's schedule to the needs of the baby, right? Sacrifice is involved. Yeah. No, uh, Sarah? When you're nervous, you have to stop everything and you have to focus on It's a very focused time when you're nursing. Okay. Yes, you have to stop everything else. There's very little, there's very limited multitasking possible. <laughs> All right. Was there another one? Did I see? Yeah. Go ahead, Claudine. Yes, that's a very good point. There's a verse in Isaiah, which someone could look up if you like, where God says, can, I, can, I, can a nursing mother forget the baby at her breast? How can I forget you, O Israel? You know, there's that sense of connection. I think for me, as well as all those things, perhaps the image in my mind is the, is the, is the image that with a nursing mother and a, and a baby, um, there's a very intimate connection. It's, it, it's skin, you're skin on skin. And I think there's something that Paul is getting across here about how, how connected he was at that time with the Thessalonians. He says, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. It's that sense of we, you knew my life, not just my teaching. Something going on there, I think. And then the last image he uses is that of father. 
in verse 11. We dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. That's my dad uh, there, which most, most of you have met him, saw him yesterday. And he, he actually says how this shaped the way he treated the Thessalonians because he says, encouraging you, comforting you, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Encouraging, comforting, and urging. Briefly, how would you define encouraging? How do you know you're being encouraged? What is someone doing if they're encouraging you? you. Come alongside you. Okay. Leading you. Leading you, yeah. Going away motivated. So you leave more motivated than before. Okay, helping you believe in yourself when you don't believe in yourself. Right. Yeah. It's nice to have encouraging people in our lives, isn't it? I mean, we all need it. Let's face it. There's something along the lines of, of them being having courage put into them, right? Encouraged to put courage in. So when you don't have the courage to carry on or to live a Christian life, we need people in our lives that can help us over that hump. What about comforting? How do you know you've been comforted? What does it mean or look like or feel like to be comforted? What would you say? Comforting. There's some overlap with all of these, but nonetheless, just to focus on that word. Reassured. Right, a recognition of what we need comforting for before actually doing some comforting. It's part of the comforting, actually, yeah. Peace. Peace? peace. Or being at peace. Once you've been comforted, there is a sense of peace that may have been absent before. That's a really good point. Yes. Yeah. Sorry? Empathy. 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 Connects with what you were saying, doesn't it? Okay. An empathetic presence. Yeah. Okay. Comforting. What about urging? How do you know you've been urged? What is the value of it? Uh, what does urging look like or feel like? A bit different to the other two, isn't it? I think a little more tricky. I think. <coughs> Pushing you to do something you weren't intending to do. Okay. All right. Urging. It's not very positive, not negative. Okay. It's not. It's not being pushed, but it's in, a, in an encouraging way, I would say. Okay. That's right. Things when someone sees what you can do. So you're here, but they can see that you can do that. Yep. And they're saying that they're pushing you. Not you can, but you're not pushing you on. But they can see when you can be, and also maybe you need to be. Okay. Um, but you're safe. Other people are safe as well. But for, 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 yeah, someone else can sometimes see what you can be or where you can be more than you can yourself and can help you to get there or help you believe you can get there. Yeah. It's a bit like me woken up. Woken up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wake up, wake up. You can do this. Come on. It's like, I mean, for me, it's like, it's more stress than encouraging. You know, encouraging can be more calm. Encouraging is more, you know, there's more gesticulation or, or, you know, energy. Energy is the right word, I think. That's a good word. There's a bit of a jolt, a bit of a wake up, a bit of energy involved. Okay. Yes. Uh, Sarah. Guidance, yeah, direction, yeah, it's involved, isn't it? Because you've got to know 
what that direction is, George. I think you're, you're right because I think there's got to be some kind of connection here. Or oh, Stefan, did you want something to add? Have something to add? Yeah, it's more a teaching point. It's quite interesting. This is one of those very long Greek words. Actually, only one word in the Greek, one very long word. And the English are trying to convey the same time. Um, I was my son was on holiday with me in South Africa, and he borrowed my rather dated Afrikaans book because my son was really good Afrikaans. He's learning to read Afrikaans now. He asked me about this word in Afrikaans, and I said, I can't translate that into one or even two or even three words in English. I have to read a few sentences to convey the symptom. And this is the same thing. It's like, probably believe that the English translations are mature, but you probably find that they all translate the Greek differently. So there's a part of what's going on, and thank you for that, is that Paul is reminding them of how he was with them, and it included all of these qualities in a way that if you take one of them out, it it makes the others less effective. I would say if you only encourage, but you don't comfort and urge one another, if you only urge, but don't comfort and encourage, there's a, there's a blend, not so much a balance, but a blend somehow of all of these qualities that Paul had with the Thessalonians. And I would say we need to have with each other. You may think, well, I'm a great encourager. Somebody else is a great comforter and somebody else is a great urger. So that's okay. And I'd say, well, yeah, I mean, in a congregation, some will be better at some than the others. But I don't think any of us can escape the responsibility to be at least competent as an encourager, competent as a comforter, and competent as an urger, because Christ had all these qualities. And we need them in different types of conversations with each other. I think I'm better at encouraging and comforting than I am at urging, in my own opinion. I've made this my theme, my theme for the year. This one Greek word is my personal theme for the year, is to grow in the blend and the balance of these qualities. But in, particularly in my preaching and teaching, but also in my conversations. Maybe we want to think about this for ourselves personally. Where are we stronger? Where are we weaker? How might we grow to be more like Christ in being competent at at least all three in some way? Because I do believe it greatly strengthens the congregation when we are. Um, I think it goes back to chapter 1, verse 3, where the congregation are commended for their work produced by faith, their labor prompted by love, and their endurance inspired by hope. Maybe I'm overthinking it, but it seems to me that the encouragement is something to do with faith. Come on, let's have faith. There's the comfort of God's love is with us in this challenging time. There's the urging on to do good things for God because we have a hope. We have a we're being called forward to something. There's, you can think about that a bit more for yourself if you want, but connect that with chapter 1, verse 3, if you like. N.C. Wright says in his commentary on this section, he exhorted them like a sports coach, telling his team how to win. He encouraged them like a friend, strengthening someone. Uh, facing a daunting task. He testified to them like a witness in a court of law. Paul did all of these things. And they are wonderful models for us to imitate as we reach out and help one another. I'll close with this uh, quote from, uh, I think it's Ernest Best from the Tyndale commentary on this section. Talking about, if you like, this unmasked missionary, this missionary who had no mask, Paul. The true missionary 
is not someone specialized in the delivery of the message, but someone whose whole being, completely committed to a message which demands all, is communicated to his or her hearers. It's not about being expert in the delivery. It's, something, it's about embodying what we're teaching, what we're bringing people. And for us to be effective at helping one another to become more Christ-like and to help the lost out there in the world come to know Christ means living the gospel sincerely with, with pure motives, understanding that suffering is part of the package, knowing that Christ will reward us eventually, but it may not be in this life, may, at least not the way we'd like it to be, knowing that as we pour ourselves out to encourage people and comfort them and to urge them to become a Christian as well as to stay a Christian and grow as a Christian, that as we live it, as we embody it with a sincere heart, with pure motives, pleasing God, not people, then, then God will bring the results. The results will come. But they come from God because we live in this way. And the reason we live this way, it's hard to live this way. It's hard to live without a mask. It's hard to live with pure motives, I would say. But the reason we do it is because Christ did this for you and me. And we're going to take communion in a moment, the bread and wine. And the reason we take that bread and wine is to remind us that Christ has already done all this for us. He's, he's the purest of pure hearts, pure hearts. He's the one who made the biggest sacrifice. He's the one who, who loved us the most like a baby or like a nursing mother or like a, a nurturing father. He's embodied all of that for you. And that, that's what inspires us. It's what inspires us to do our best in the same way for others. So we'll pray and take bread and wine in just a moment. But before that, I'm going to ask Patricia to come up and pray for us.